Good morning, everyone. Psalm 44. Do you have a favourite uh, hymn or a, a song that stands out to you a lot more than others? Psalm 44 is, is a, a psalm that really stands out to me and uh, one that I've come back to many times. And I want to explain why this morning. I hope you're able to engage in our, our challenge or our task for last week. Last week, we looked at the, uh, the fact that sometimes we go into battle and we try and take on our challenges before we go to God. And my challenge from last week was simply to try to reverse that and for the past week to wake up in the morning and instead of launching into the day and starting all of the trials and the battles without God, to try to start your day by turning to God first and recognizing that he's in control and that the victory is guaranteed when I'm on his side. I hope you're able to um, give that a go. I think it's certainly a a strengthening thing to just try that. Um, It doesn't take much time. If you couldn't do it this past week, maybe this week is the week to give it a go. Psalm 44 is what we're looking at, and uh, we're looking at these songs of victory, these songs that we sing victoriously. So Psalm 44 starts with... um, a plea to God um, that he has heard them. It then changes tone and, and goes down a different track and talks about how God has then forsaken them. And we are going to be dealing with that today. Those times when we feel like God has left us alone, like we are uh, forsaken by our God, like he is not there to help us in our very real and pressing distress. Maybe you're going through a season like that right now. Uh, Maybe you've just been been through that season or you're going through that season soon. Whatever it might be, um, this is a psalm that can help us through those dark and challenging times. Charles Spurgeon, the uh, very famous um, preacher and commentator, said regarding Psalm 44, he said, Some Israelitish patriot, fallen on evil times, sings in mingled faith and sorrow his country's ancient glory and her present griefs, her traditions of former favour and her experience of pressing ills. That's, that's what Psalm 44 is all about. It's someone who's probably an Israelite, someone who's recounting the um, evil times that they've fallen on. It's someone who is singing to God and the, the song that they're singing is a mixture. It's a It's a mixed song. It's not just one theme. It's a theme of faith, but also mingled with sorrow. And he's singing about his country, how it had ancient glories in the past. It had successes in times that have gone by. But at the present, it has griefs that it's struggling with. And the psalm addresses her traditions of former favor, how in times past, God has given his grace. That's what favor means, God's God's grace. And the experience of the pressing ills, the the misfortunes, the despair uh, that it's facing. So that's a summary of what it's all about. This is how the psalm is roughly broken down. Your Bible might break it into paragraphs, but this is uh, a rough way to break down the psalm. Verses 1 to 8 are a recollection of God's past help. Verses 9 through 16 talk about the current distress that the writer is in. Verses 17 to 22 talk about the innocence of God's people, how God's people are not to blame for the situation that they're in. And finally, in verses 23 to 26, this is a a, a prayer for deliverance. So we're going to start by looking at um, part one, the recollection of God's past help. Verses 
So I hope you have your Bible open with you. I'm going to put the verses up on the screen, but if you want to take notes or you want to see it in your own translation or follow along to get the context, um, please make sure you follow along with me. Psalm 44 and verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. The psalmist has grown up in a religious family or a religious community. And so he says, that older generation, whenever they get around and tell stories, they're telling us all the stories of the good things that you've done for them. And this is a, a reminder for us that each generation has an obligation to pass on the good things that God has done for you to the next generation. Um, in Timothy, um, uh, Paul talks about this, that Timothy's faith is the same as that which was in his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he says that this faith has been passed down from generation to generation. And Paul actually says to another congregation, or to Titus, who's preaching to several congregations, if you just flip uh, with me to Titus chapter 2, he talks about how this isn't just something that he hopes will happen. He commands it to happen in the church. He says the older generation has to be sharing their faith with the younger generation. So Titus chapter 2 and he talks about this specifically with women, but also this command applies to men as well, um, this principle of passing on their faith. So Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So, to our older generations, if, if you can see a generation below you, you have an obligation to tell them about God. It is your duty to tell people who are in the generation below you about the good things that God has done and the ways that you have put your trust in him, the ways that he has seen that faith um, and responded to that. It is your duty to seek out opportunities to do so. It is your duty to find opportunities to teach the younger generations about God. Now, sometimes that's going to be hard. Sometimes it might seem like the younger generation might not want to hear or that finding opportunities is really difficult. I understand that. To the younger generations, if you can also help your older generations to allow them to teach you about God, then that's a good thing. If you can invite um, someone from an older generation over for dinner or for coffee and ask them about their faith and ask them about how to be more Christ-like and how to be a disciple, absolutely do that. But the obligation that Paul puts it on, he says, ultimately for the older women, older men, to be finding those opportunities and to be teaching those um, younger generations. So this church here, this is a church family where we need to make sure that that's happening. Where this week, you need to make sure you're taking opportunities to teach the generation below you about the good things that God has done. That just needs to be part of who we are. It needs to be part of our DNA at Gibbs Street here. He says in verse 2, he goes on and talks about the, um, the, what he has received from the generation above him. He says, You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, the Israelites, his fathers, you, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, our fathers, you set free. In verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand 
and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So this psalmist is saying, I know the stories. I know the kind of God that you are because I've been told by the generations that have come before me. He then goes on in verse 4 to 6 and he says, he implies this personally. It isn't just the good things that he's heard about God, but it's his personal experience with a God who's save, who saves him. You are my king, O God, in verse 4. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Jacob just being another name for the children of Jacob, the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews, all of the people of God. Verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. So he says there that in previous generations they didn't trust in their weapons. And he says, even for me, I don't trust in my weapons. I recognize in my experience that my bow doesn't save me, my sword doesn't save me, but I need to trust in God. You remember what we looked at last week in Psalm 20. In Psalm 20, we looked at this idea of they who trust in horses and chariots. And in Psalm 44, the the writer is saying, I know not to do that. My fathers have shown me and I know from my personal experience. I will trust in God. But does trusting in God mean everything is going to be fine for this fine psalmist? Absolutely not. Look at the the next section of the psalm um, in verses 7 and 8. Um, but you have saved us from our foes. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually. And we will give thanks to your name forever. Okay, it's all hunky-dory. It's all going well up to this point. And it finishes with Salah there. Now, that would be a great place to end this psalm. To say, God's taken care of him. God's looked after him. Everything's fine. Everything works out. And we'll end the sermon there today. But wait. We've got more time remaining, so let's go into the real meaty part of the psalm. This is where he gets to the, real, um, the really hard-to-tackle subjects. So he goes in verses 9 through 16 onto the current distress that he's in. Even though he's put his trust in God, he is still going to face immense distress. In verses 9 through 12, he says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us. I'll just remind you, he's talking to God there. What a thing to say to your creator. What a thing to say to the God who he's just praised for saving him and helping him and he's put his trust in him. And have not gone out with our armies. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoiled. He's representing the people of God here. And he's saying the people who are these pagans, they worship the other gods. They worship the the gods who aren't actually gods. They disrespect you and they despise you. And you've led them to victory instead of us. In verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter. This is a far cry from Psalm 23, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Well, here he says, yeah, God's a shepherd and he's leading us like sheep to the slaughter. That's the kind of shepherd our God is, according to Psalm 44. And you've scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle. 
demanding no high price for them. This is pretty honest, isn't it? This isn't polite talk. This isn't formal. This is someone unleashing on God their true feelings and despair. They're not holding anything back. They're not trying to be polite and and, uh, lightly broach the subject. They're telling God exactly how they feel and they feel hurt and betrayed by God. In verses 13 through 16, he continues like that wasn't enough. He says, You have made us the taunt of our neighbours, the derision and scorn of those around us. Who has? God has. God has done this, he says. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. If you're talking to the Queen, let's say that the Queen comes and visits Toowoomba and she wants to pay a visit to your house, what kind of polite conversation would you want to engage her with? You'd talk about things that aren't controversial. You wouldn't talk about any criticisms of her. You certainly wouldn't um, have a no-holds-back um, verbal attack on her character and what she's allowed to happen. Because with people who are really important and with discussions that are very formal and polite, we don't bear all our emotions. What God is allowing in this psalm, he's saying he divinely inspires these words to say, when you come to him in prayer, you don't have to talk politely and formally and exclude how you really feel. You don't have to pretend when you come before God. You can tell him what you feel. You can tell him when you're in despair. You can tell him when you feel like he has forsaken you. Every intimate relationship is based on honesty. And how often are we not really wanting to be honest with God? We want to go to God and and say nice, polite prayers. We want to go to God and and just tell him that everything's going okay and, you know, thank you for this and we really appreciate you. And oftentimes our real grief and our hardship and the things that are weighing us down, we pretend to God like those things aren't actually hurting us. This, This psalm is saying that's not how you have to talk to God. You're allowed to tell him how you feel. He knows how you feel anyway, so you may as well be honest with him. You may as well tell him when you're feeling despair and destitute. He then goes on and and he says in these next couple of verses, he's going to say, we didn't even deserve it. You know, sometimes in the Psalms he says we've gone through a bad time and we had it coming. But in this Psalm he says we didn't deserve the treatment that we're now receiving. He says in verse 17, all this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. This psalm could have almost been written by Job, couldn't it? Job spends a lot of um, his speeches talking about this same subject. He says, I didn't do the wrong thing. I'm not suffering because I've been willfully disobedient here. I've trusted in God. I've put my faith in him. I haven't forgotten him. I've kept his covenant. I've been walking in his ways and yet he has left me. 
and I feel like he's so far away from me. In verses 20 and 22. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have discovered this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He's saying there, if we've been secretly worshipping idols, God, you know it. If we've been secretly giving money to the pagan gods, if we've been secretly committing adultery or, or committing theft or we have evil in our lives in some way, God, you know that. But he says, look, you know my life. And I'm not doing any of those things. I've tried with all of my heart to be faithful to you and to walk in your ways. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. You see, he's, he's laying it out here and he's saying, the reason for our suffering is for God's sake. He's actually suffering in the name of God, going through all of this hardship and distress because he has been faithful to God and yet he feels completely broken and in despair. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He repeats that verse from previously. Then he says this in uh, verses 23 to 26. He says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Now, this is a pretty bold thing to say to God, isn't it? Wake up, splash some water on your face, get out of bed and help me. To accuse God, the God who knows all things, the God who is in control of this whole world, to say to God, wake up, sleepyhead, get out of bed and start acting. It's not the way that we would traditionally approach a formal conversation, a polite conversation. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And then it ends. Now some of these psalms, they go through the hardships. And then at the end, the final paragraph is... But, you know, you have redeemed us and we trust in you and you'll come to our help and you always follow through. But this psalm, there is no silver lining to it in the end. This psalm is just an attack on God, a, a cry of despair, saying that this is unfair and then it finishes and God doesn't even get a say. I don't know about you, but if I had a book written about me and I got to choose everything that was written in it and someone had written an attacking um, song about me, about how I wasn't answering their distress and how I wasn't doing all that I could have and that I'd left them and that it was unfair, I would probably either cut it out completely or I would at least add a note down the bottom to say, by the way, I had, you know, I was trying and, you know, I had a busy week that week, that's why I couldn't help or, you know, in my whole plan of things, I was trying to do the right thing. I would clarify the accusations that were brought up against me. But God doesn't do that in this psalm. He leaves it. He says, you're angry at me, you're upset at me, you feel despair, you feel alone. Full stop. Someone described this psalm as, it's as if you're watching a, uh, you know, a debate on TV. They've got the US presidential um, elections coming up and they're trying to find the, their nominees and they, they've got the debates and 
you know, everyone is trying to get their fair say of, I want my time to defend myself. You're not allowed to lay all those accusations on me and I can't respond to that. Someone illustrated this psalm by saying, it's as if it's a debate between God and man and the man gets the, the first opening speech and he just reads out Psalm 44 and he says God is, is absent from me, God is leading us like sheep to the slaughter, God is, is leaving us alone and then just as it pans to God to get his response, the camera cuts and he doesn't get to say anything. It's just man that gets his say. What's the point of a psalm like this? How is this meant to help us? When we read psalms like this, we have to ask the question, why would God allow a psalm like this in his Bible? Why would God allow man to talk to him like this? Why would God allow man to to lay accusations against him and to not even answer those things in the psalm? Free will, that's right, Kev. The Psalms are trying to get you to understand what kind of relationship you ought to have with God. The Psalms are there to try and get you to open your eyes and say, these are the kind of prayers that I need to be praying. This is the kind of honesty and relationship that I need with God. Psalm 44 says, when you are despairing and when you're in a bad place, don't pretend to God that you're not there. Don't pretend like you're not feeling those things. Let God know. Tell God exactly how you feel. Job does the same thing. You remember at the end of Job, even though Job has laid out all of his complaints, God says in Job 41 there that Job spoke rightly of him. Job spoke rightly of God, not because he got everything absolutely right, not because his accusations were all fair against God. It was the fact that at least he addressed God with those things. And the question that I have to all of us is, when you go through times of despair and heartache, do you turn towards God or do you turn away from God? Is your natural reaction to hide those things from God or is it to lay it all open before God? Let's go to Peter and look at what Peter has to say. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5 and verse 7. Peter says, and this is a command, not advice. This is a command. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All your anxieties. The word cast there, in the Greek it means throw. Chuck them at God. Let me say this uh, very firmly. Do not cast all your anxieties on me. (laughs) I can't handle it. Do not cast all your anxieties on someone else. If you're a Christian, throw everything at God. The good stuff and the ugly stuff. Don't just throw the polite things at God. Don't just pretend like he's this king who is so far from you that you can only say nice things and you can't be open and honest about your life. Psalm 44 says, lay it all bare. Tell him when things are are unbearable. Tell him when you're just not coping. Tell him when you're in so much pain, you feel like he's to blame. Even if you're wrong, tell him about it. 
Go and share those things with God. The other Psalms say the same thing. Turn back to uh, the Psalms with me and let's go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Because we know that if we go through hardship and we don't turn to God, that's the point where we'll fall. But if we go through this pain and turn back to God and let him know everything, throw everything at him, only then will we stand. In Psalm 37 verses 23 and 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Though he fall, not saying that as a Christian or as a follower of God, you'll never fall. It's saying, though you fall, you'll not be cast headlong, for the Lord holds onto your hand. Look also in Psalm 55 with me. Psalm 55. And verse 22. Cast or throw or chuck, sling, throw, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. When you have burdens... Throw them towards God. Don't be scared of letting God know exactly how much hurt you're going through. As Christians, we need to direct, to direct all of that towards God. So, this is the question that I want to ask you this week. Do you turn towards God or do you turn away from God when things get hard? The point of Psalm 44 is this question. When the challenges of life come, do you turn towards or do you turn away? Prayer doesn't have to always look pretty. Some days are going to be so tough that you might not manage a prayer much politer or calmer than Psalm 44. But don't wait until those hard times are over before you turn to God. Get down on your knees. Posture helps a lot. If you're able to get down on your knees in those kinds of times, um, Posture is, a, is an amazing thing, isn't it? And I was listening to someone the other day who was saying the reason the, that he's able to resolve all of the, um, the fights that he has with his wife is because every time they disagree on something, they sit down uh, on a table and they sit across from each other and they hold hands and look into each other's eyes. And it's pretty hard to get frustrated or upset at someone when you are in that posture. Um, I was listening to a lawyer and he was saying that when his clients come and when they have to face someone who they're angry at and who they might lose their temper at, he gets them to open their palms and hold them underneath the table. He opens, gets them to hold their, uh, their palms open the whole time because when you're with closed fists, you know that that just upsets you and it drives you mad. When you're praying to God, the Bible talks about kneeling and it talks about this posture of, of humility. When you're going through hard times, you're... If your body is in that position and it is telling your mind that you are going to God, you might be frustrated at him. You might be despairing at the things you're going through. But at least you're going to him. And that's what Psalm 44 is begging you and pleading with you to do. I just want to finish with one final verse. It's Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. (laughs) 
I said at the start that this was a psalm that I really relate to and I really enjoy coming back to. I sometimes wonder if it was a favourite of Paul's because in Romans chapter 8, which is regarded by many as one of the finest chapters in all of Scripture, and the finest, at the pinnacle of it all, Paul quotes from Psalm 44. And he relates Psalm 44 to his present situation and says, yes, as a Christian, I go through that same despair. Look at what he says in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, notice there it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, is that saying who will separate us from loving Christ or Christ from loving us? Well, in the Greek, it's ambiguous. You can't actually tell which way around. For a Christian, it should be both. Nothing should stop you from loving Christ. Nothing will stop Christ from loving you. And he says in verse 36, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks, everyone.